Hello everyone and welcome back to our podcast, Raya Affairs. So before getting into some announcements, I wanted to introduce myself as your sole host for today. I'm Marina and I am one of the original creators of the podcast, studying international relations and law. I'm also the project development coordinator at Raya Group and I've worked alongside a team for over four months now to bring the latest of Raya to you through here. As per usual, I'll give you a brief overview of what Raya is. So it's an international think tank led by young professionals that translates the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. So Raya is where you can come to learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of what it is to be a decision maker, and how politics impacts and changes your life. So as always, this is Raya Affairs filling you in wherever you are. We would also like to make it clear that any expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they're not a direct reflection of Raya as we specialize in unbiased writing and analysis. So as many of you have been following, we published four different profiles on climate leaders in collaboration with our summer program students from IE University School of Global and Public Affairs. So we wanted to thank um, those of you who have supported the project. The feedback we have been getting is very much appreciated and goes to show that Raya Affairs is a platform for learning. For those of you who have not had the chance yet, I do recommend listening to some of these episodes given that we can expect slight reflections of these leaders' policies at the COP27 negotiations currently underway um, since last week, I believe. So last episode specifically, we invited Puren San to discuss Annalena Baerbock and her climate leadership in the German Green Party, including her domestic coal phase-out plans and the ramifications of the Russia-Ukraine war on the progress of these policies. This week, we'll be moving on from climate leaders and continuing on the interesting topic of energy security and most of all, Germany's need to diversify their energy supply. Moreover, we'll be looking at two leaders individually and analyzing how their visions, their interests, and domestic limitations influence this bilateral deal that they have brokered. So with that in mind, let's kick it off. I would like to introduce our skilled Raya Senior Editor and Research and Analysis Coordinator, Francia Morales. She will be joining us to discuss Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and German Councillor Olaf Scholz and their joint hydrogen alliance. So, hi, Francia, and welcome to Raya Affairs. Why don't you tell everyone a bit about yourself? So, where you're from, what you do currently, and perhaps how you got the role you have today at Raya, how you started, and I guess your journey throughout Raya. My name is Francia, as you said. I'm from Mexico, and here at Raya, I'm the editor-in-chief of the research and analysis team. I got this role by working hard, I guess, and dedicating time to the team since I was an intern uh, all the way to now. And I basically just let people know what my ambitions were. And I was carefully tested until I earned the role. Okay, so moving on. This next little question, I usually tend to ask all our guests because we know that they're just as passionate about IR as we are, but also because um, the answers kind of never guess to, they never fail to surprise or amaze us. So Francia, what leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world, would you like to have the opportunity to have a conversation with if you could? So I always answer the same thing to this question because believe it or not, I've been asked it a million times uh, and it's quite boring, but I'll never change it, I don't think. And it's Genghis Khan. So he was the, he, I mean, he was technically an emperor in every sense of the word, but he was the leader of the Mongolian empire. And, you know, for years now I've said this because 
I think there are certainly more people in the world who have existed that I would maybe feel more honored to share air with, let alone share a meal with or have a conversation with. But Genghis Khan was like a vicious general of very humble beginnings from the Mongolian steppe. He really grew up in the mountain with yogurt and a horse, and he became emperor of one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And his empire became the exception to every other empire at the time in several different aspects. He was an extremely enlightened man, and I would probably ask him how he coexisted, I guess, with how he was as a man, super violent, horrible man, um, and what he valued, which was enlightenment and learning and wisdom. So I, I would like to learn more about him firsthand if I could. Thank you, Francia. That's a very unique answer. And actually, I would love to know, you know, whatever he res would respond to your question. But now let's start off with our actual focus of today, right? So let's get into some basic background on the topic before analyzing our two leaders. So very straightforward. Could you go into the key points of the Hydrogen Alliance? In other words, what is it and what does it entail until 2025? Well, The Hydrogen Alliance is its stage name, really. It's kind of like some artists have something that they'll... Like, The weekend isn't his name, you know what I mean? The Hydrogen Alliance's real name is uh, a joint declaration of intent, which is not really sort of binding, but it, it says from both countries, you know, we really, really want to do this, and we intend to create binding policy in order for it to happen. And what this Declaration of Intent sets forth is the active will to increase funding for hydrogen projects and create policy to secure hydrogen supply chains for both countries to create these projects and to establish a direct liquid hydrogen supply line from Canada to Germany and to begin exporting hydrogen to Germany by 2025. All right. So as a follow up, Francia, in the wider context of European and regional energy strategy, why would this declaration of intent, or for all purposes, I'll keep calling it alliance, significant? Can we link this alliance to just overall EU interests in hydrogen as a main energy alternative? Mm. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> in two ways. Uh, there's the obvious need for a diversification of energy suppliers as Europe although they've been doing a pretty good job at it. Particularly Central and Eastern European countries like Germany are moving away from Russian gas and oil. And Germany itself has done a pretty good job at replacing energy from Russia, but has done so with coal mostly, which takes us to our next point. The EU has been interested in the development of green hydrogen for some time now. And this has been an interest at Raya, and we have actually covered it a few times if you want to go look for articles. But just this year, the EU president, um, Ursula von der Leyen, announced a new European hydrogen bank, which will invest about 3 billion euros over the next three years to build up a European hydrogen market. Until now, it's unclear whether Germany will use these EU funds for this bilateral agreement, but it nonetheless speaks to the overall European interests in leaving behind fossil fuels and betting on renewable and clean energy sources and sort of getting a stake in that market. All right. And I just wanted to point out to our listeners that I believe you mentioned in your article a damper in this alliance, um, quote unquote, but also that there's this soft spot right in negotiations. You know, Europe and particularly Germany are interested interested in not only hydrogen, but exports of liquefied natural gas as another energy source. 
However, Canada's reaction to that has been one of refusing to include this in the agreement. So while we will get into Trudeau's more um, domestic pressures in a second, would you say that there's an overarching reason or um, a main reason why Canada cannot export liquefied natural gas for now? So I don't want to make it sound evil or anything because it's really not. Technically, you could use the same infrastructure to that they're building to export hydrogen, to export LNG. Uh, the problem is that Canada is a big country. And like the United States, it spans the whole American continent from left to right. And as of now, most of the LNG production happens on one side of the country. And Canada, a country trying really hard to stop their participation in fossil fuel production, would want to have little to do with whole new infrastructure or, pi or pipelines uh, to transport gas from the west to the east coast and then to Europe. If Europe no longer needs Canadian LNG in a few years because they'll be using hydrogen, and hydrogen doesn't need these coast-to-coast -coast pipelines, then it's not a very good investment for long-term returns for Canada, really. And especially with their... Domestic politics, some people would not be happy with building LNG pipelines that would cross First Nations land. Thank you, Francia, for the clarification. And as you said, it is a matter of infrastructure, of a technicality. And I think this is very linked to Trudeau's interests in the alliance. So as you mentioned in your article, Canada does not have the strongest mark in international affairs. We very rarely hear about Canada, despite them being a NATO and G20 member. Thus, with this alliance, it just becomes more obvious that Trudeau is looking to solidify Canada's position or their willingness to for cooperation, right, through their position as an energy supplier. So they're looking to increase security through any means uh, possible, and I think hydrogen happens to be one of the means. So what, however, are some of the bureaucratic and political obstacles that Trudeau faces at home that cause for such a situation in the first place? I don't want to overstate this point too much, uh, because sure, Canada underfunds their NATO contributions. Uh, and this was actually a bit of a, a, a hiccup during writing my article, because the person who edits me is the other research and analysis coordinator, David Salinger. And we had a bit of a kerfuffle over it in the edits. But in the end, he let me keep it because he thought it was, you know, my argument. Uh, but Canada surely underfunds its NATO contributions, but so does everybody else up until this February. And really, nobody cared much for it. But also, Canada is one of the two member countries that's not in the European continent, the other being the USA. And they certainly don't have the military weight that the U.S. does. Uh, but it also doesn't always intend to, right? So something that contributes to this is the complicated nature of Canadian defense policy. The way that foreign defense policy is formulated in Canada takes many different bureaucratic bodies. And since many people are involved in the decision making, it often can go quite slowly. And also Trudeau does not have power similar to a president that would in the United States, who may have more space to make certain choices or a cabinet that's maybe more, more executive in that sense. But at the end of the day, he's the leader of his party and he's the minority party and he's allied with other parties that are quite anti-war. And if he were to push for excessive defense spending, it maybe would not go in his favor at all. So this is one way that Trudeau can act to indirectly weaken Russia's position vis-a-vis -vis Europe, but yeah. 
I would say that that's his main problem. Slow decision-making and allegiance to his party's interests. And Francia, now that you have given us an overview and based on your understanding of the composition of the Canadian government and how it works and going back to Canada's stance on liquefied natural gas, why is Trudeau not tempted to commit to Europe's demands? So what would he require from Europe and Germany that would perhaps give him the confidence to go forth with uh, the LNG exports and everything that they entail? Trudeau would need more commitment from Europe that could compensate for the commitment that it takes to build these pipelines uh, or new LNG ports in a quicker way than it's going to take to build all the hydrogen infrastructure, right? So things don't just cost money. And at the moment, Trudeau does not have infinite political capital, again, because he's a minority party in Canada or he leads the minority party. And also, agreeing to supply more LNG wouldn't mean that those ports magically appear and they would take also years to build, which technically Canadian companies are very willing to do because they would get money, of course. Uh, but what happens if years from now Europe no longer wants LNG? And again, you have all of those coast-to-coast pipelines that maybe won't have the return on business that Trudeau is looking for. It doesn't make it worth it for him. Definitely, Francia. And I think that this last question you propose is an implication to think about for the long term. And it links perfectly to the next question that I wanted to ask you regarding the country's energy strategy. I don't know much about whether they have a plan for liquefied natural gas, but they do have Canada's national hydrogen strategy. So what are the economic gains that Trudeau seeks from the alliance, connecting it back to this hydrogen strategy? Well, It's funny that you say that because Canada certainly did have a natural gas plan, right? I mean, at least in the 20th century, they did. They're one of the main exporters of fossil fuels or rather natural gas now, but still Canada is an industrialized country. So their exports aren't something that will be essential to their economy, but Canada is a net exporter of oil, which doesn't exactly contribute to their goals of being a net zero emitting country by 2050. And the hydrogen strategy is a game plan so that the con- that the country has developed in order to get ahead in the race of market share for hydrogen exports. And Europe is a great market because they also have plans to be a net zero emitting union and, you know, all the green interests come together and people can make money. Thanks. Um, So now I guess we can move on. You've done the perfect segue. We can move on to this European side so we can discuss our second leader, Chancellor Scholz. So Germany's dependence on natural gas, oil and coal from Russia prior to the invasion of Ukraine has been a subject, as you've said, but as I've said as well, that we've constantly discussed on this podcast So it's been very clear that Schultz's long-term goal is German independence from Russian energy supply, just because of the unpredictability that this war, you know, has um, shed a light to. So it's also his first year as the country's leader. And so my question to you is, what has Schultz, um, before we get into his personal interests, what has he inherited from the previous chancellor, so from Merkel's energy politics, and how has he navigated the crisis so far? This is a good question, uh, and I like it, but you're going to get me to nerd out a bit. But Merkel is a very pragmatic woman, 
Uh, in general, Germany has had quite pragmatic politics. It's a, it's a very, I think, no-nonsense country. And we can't forget that Germany was part of the Soviet Union until 1989. Germany didn't magically become West Germany when it reunified. It was part of the Soviet Union. And many generations in Eastern Germany grew up influenced by Russia, Merkel included. So for the past 30 years, or let's say let it began to change in 2014. So for almost 25 years, the foreign policy strategy of Germany was a focus on economic and energetic integration of Eastern Europe. Uh, not to mention the integration that already existed from the Soviet era. So Merkel's relationship with Putin was infamous and good for the most part. And what Schultz inherited from Merkel was a policy docket within which economic interdependence would serve as a deterrent for conflict, which is not a bad idea if you think about it, uh, to say, let's depend on each other so much that your economy depends on me still buying your gas and my energy depends on, you know, us not going to war. Um <laughs> uh, but Putin ultimately decided that the costs of war were worth it, and these deterrents are now being scaled back. Schultz is now tasked with uncoupling Germany's energy systems from Russia. And he has turned to domestic alternatives, such as natural gas reserves, coal, renewables, buying natural gas from other suppliers, and such. But the, the, um, but the shock in general, due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the production cut by OPEC, is driving prices super, super high, obviously, as many of you know. So other policy strategies have been a windfall tax on energy companies, like taxing uh, profits that they wouldn't usually have. That's what a windfall tax is. And energy and power subsidies of different kinds for consumers. So he inherited a very interconnected energy system, and now he's kind of trying to do anything he can to not have that affect people. So thank you, Francia, for that overview, actually. It was very helpful. And just to be clear, the Hydrogen Alliance imports would only begin, if they begin on time, three years from now. So why has Schultz gone through with the deal anyways? Well, for one, uh, Schultz doesn't just have to think about fixing things from the war. Uh, he's also thinking about the commitments that his coalition, which includes the Green Party, has made to to Germany's green sort of green transition, but also because some things don't just need a short-term fix. Like Germany has been buying a lot of natural gas from other places and Germany then exports to other places in Europe, but still they have, I think, what they need as of now to supply for the next few years because there have been willing sellers of LNG to Germany or of uh, natural gas or oil. But the Hydrogen Alliance still serves both countries' purposes on the long term. And that's still important, not just to think about the short term, because there's a war. Exactly. And I think we can definitely highlight that it's a good alternative, both for his environmental politics and then later on for what the price um, of energy, the cost of energy will be. I just want to move on now and discuss... Um, Schultz's actual actions. You know, we've seen that he's been very practical in Canada with his visit, you know, to sign this declaration of intent lasting three days. But I feel that his diplomacy has evolved also outside the country. So how has he really secured some energy suppliers and investments um, beyond Canada and as well beyond uh, Europe? So I know that I mentioned specific countries in the article, and at this moment, I can't recall them. But 
Uh, Schultz has not only gone to Canada, of course, in the first few months of the war, you could see both him and his foreign minister and his economic minister, so Robert Havoc and Elena Baerbock and Schultz himself, traveling to Africa as well, to some of the energy exporting countries there who have made some commitments to sell energy to Germany and to other countries in Europe. And so... This is not new. Again, I think that you can't overstate desperation. I mean, sorry, you shouldn't overstate desperation. There is no, I think, scramble really, but Schultz definitely has pointed to his more historical economic ties in African with African energy exporters to to secure, you know, short-term energy purchases and supplies as well as in Canada. But it's not something that I would say um, like a super main focus. No, definitely. And just to go into the specifics of what you did actually mention, when he, uh, he did go to Africa, he did look at new suppliers of coal coming from South Africa. And he also decided to invest or looked at opportunities of investing in Senegal's new gas extraction projects. So... I just wanted to add that little detail in there. But before we actually finish off and go into a segment that we call the top three takeaways, I think we can definitely comment on how this um, deal or how this declaration of intent for now is a win-win situation for both leaders. So the diplomatic impact has been very immediate, while the true benefits, as I've said before, of the hydrogen exports will go unnoticed until later on. Trudeau has taken, you know, the extra step as a leader in, you know, hydrogen production, while Schultz has found yet another alternative to Germany's energy crisis. So to tie it all together, Francia, do you believe that this deal will remain a win-win situation for both leaders when looking at it in the long run? Absolutely. Of course, I think it'll be a win-win and not just for Canada and Germany. I think it'll be a win-win for any other country who's looking to become a hydrogen exporter for anyone who has been slowly betting on renewable energy and for anyone who kind of wants any real proof that we're moving to maybe a greener economy um, because green hydrogen can be used anywhere where there's infrastructure for LNG. And that's pretty cool <laughs> because uh, it gives us hope that we're not just locked into our infrastructures for fossil fuel. It means that we actually have alternatives that are cleaner. It's not technically renewable, but alternatives that are cleaner, that are good for our environment and and actually can fuel the industry of economies. That's good news. Thank you. So you elaborated and you ended on a positive note. Perfect. Um, so it seems we've come to the end of the the first discussion. So before moving on to our last segment, which I'll explain in a second. But before that, of course, I wanted to know, um, we ask this of all our writers, um, what do you believe are the top three takeaways that our listeners should have regarding the process of research and analysis of which you're very, very familiar with? So more specifically, can you relate it to what you've learned in your own process and how far you've come in really understanding uh, and analyzing individual decision makers um, So and the way that they make yeah, their decisions? I think number one is you can't be in anybody's head, but they leave a lot of clues about what's in it. Um, so pay attention. I think number two is don't let yourself get in your own way. So I think we can have a lot of personal 
paradigms about the world and sometimes we get in the way of the facts that are right in our face and uh to be attentive is a good second tip the third one in research and analysis look at the whole picture they tell a lot it tells a lot more than just a, a single part of the story so again looking at the hydrogen alliance in the context of everything that's happening instead of just oh look they made an alliance uh because why would they need to right they're they've been allies forever um but this speaks to something i think bigger so those are the three tips okay so you all heard it here we always have to look at the bigger picture and i think that's a perfect segue into this next segment which we really enjoyed when we had our summer interns on raya affairs and this is a segment in which we call connecting the dots so the aim is to connect our leader or in this case our leaders at hand with a wider international relations topic ranging from development human rights foreign policy, security, anything we can really think of. So again, at Raya, we do want to show how interconnected global politics is. And in your article, Francia, you briefly touch upon Canada's need to increase oil and gas production to compensate for rising global prices. And on Germany's side, Schultz's need to consider his coalition's green commitments when seeking new gas arrangements in Senegal, for instance. So that reminder, you know that the green commitment does exist. So right now, negotiators from governments and well, civil society around the world are meeting up in Egypt for the COP27. And yet much of the criticisms by environmental organizations ahead of this conference have been related to the incompatibility of the new fossil fuel explorations that some of these countries have undertaken, given the unexpected duration of the Russia-Ukraine war on the one hand um, with the Paris Climate Agreement. So again, the incomp incompatibility, just making it clear of the climate agreement with what some the action that some countries are taking now. So I was wondering whether we can connect the dots between Schultz's actions with regards to developing new gas fields and projects and Germany's climate objectives. In other words, would you say that the Hydrogen Alliance is in line with Germany's overall climate commitments? This is a really good question, and I'm going to start with this. If we got rid of all oil and gas right now, we would not be able to live as people. We, our lives would be impossible. <laughs> we need oil and gas currently, and we are very far from not needing oil and gas currently in terms of the way that we can, the technology that we have to supply our energy needs with renewables or cleaner energy. At the moment, our capacity is not the same. But that's just because we've been spending a century and a half using oil and gas and a lot less time developing renewables. And at this moment, we have challenges of storing the energy we get from renewables, distributing the energy we get from renewables. It's a complicated process. I don't think that it's incompatible for a country to have the goals to wean off of fossil fuels and to still produce fossil fuels because a government has a social contract with its people and a responsibility to provide specific needs for basic survival. And fossil fuels do that. Um, and I think it's very easy to criticize the responsibilities and actions of a government 
because it's something abstract to us, I think. We don't really know what's happening with the decisions that people make. We don't really understand the magnitude of the energy that we consume. But at the moment, Germany is the biggest economy in the EU. And if their industry doesn't work, nobody's getting anything, <laughs> I think. And not I think, I know. Uh, and other economies would be dragged down with it. And so I don't think there's an incompatibility with having productive conversations about how we can make our energy systems cleaner, as in a lot of ways they have become. Um, our fossil fuel industries have also become cleaner in the past 50 years. Uh, there's no incompatibility with that and with still using fossil fuels or developing new gas fields because people need to eat, people need to heat their homes, people need to have a job, uh, things need to be made, things need to be exported, etc., etc. And I would say that the Hydrogen Alliance is in line with Germany's overall climate commitments because they want to use and or emit less CO2. And because they do hope to transform their energy infrastructure. And it has been happening. Germany has been one of the fastest paced transformations in the past 30, 40 years. So that's what I have to say about that. And Francia, you bring a relevant point regarding the way we have built our world economies to need to be sustained by fossil fuels, even as we transition to renewables. The reality is that many developing economies will still rely on fossil fuels in the future, and they'll expect developed economies to lead the way eventually. So sadly, we're actually coming to the end of this episode. We began with Francia giving us an understanding of the three main points of the non-binding hydrogen alliance between Canada and Germany. The alliance is not only significant for bilateral relations, but it links to an overall EU interest in hydrogen, as exemplified when Francia mentioned the EU's hydrogen bank. However, our discussion did look at the European and Canadian stance on another source, which is the liquefied natural gas, of which Canada did not include in the alliance goals. Our discussion then went on to analyze Trudeau's domestic limitations regarding this, so regarding the liquefied natural gas, but also regarding increasing cooperation and security with the purpose of diminishing Russia's position as an energy supplier. And again, this is done not through defense spending, but through energy strategy like the alliance indicates. And when discussing our other leader, Schultz, Francia went into what differentiates him and the previous chancellor, Merkel's pipeline politics, and really how Schultz has had to act given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I believe one of the most interesting responses that I got from Francia was on Schultz's pragmatic response in order to diversify Germany's energy supply. We, of course, have his alliance with Canada now, but he's also looking at other countries belonging to the African continent. Lastly, we were able to determine how this agreement in the long term will affect both leaders, with Francia asserting that it is a win-win situation and just a positive step towards a cleaner energy future. It's been a pleasure to have Francia on Raya Affairs today, going in-depth into Trudeau and Schultz Hydrogen Alliance. So thank you, Francia. I know you are busy, but we did need to get you on here already. I look forward to reading more of your articles because everyone, Francia, writes beautifully. Her analysis is very faithful to the Raya methodology and you always get a lot out of her articles. Thank you so much, Marina. That's so kind. 
That's so nice. It was a pleasure to be here. And I do hope to write more in the future. And I hope to study my own articles before I come on this podcast next time. <laughs> no, don't worry. This was a great conversation. And I guess for those of you who have enjoyed it as well, just as much as we both have, and you want to read Francia's article for yourself, click the link in the episode description, or you can find her research at riagroup.org. Also, you can follow us on Instagram, raya.now, where all the latest content is also posted. So it was a pleasure hosting this discussion today. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Francia. Have a great day in your sphere of influence. Music.